We'll see what it says in Ecclesiastes 11, and we'll jump to 12, because I think it's fascinating. It's actually one of the portions of the scriptures that talk about death and dying very openly, very candidly, uh, sometimes metaphorically in a really beautiful way that I think um, gives some language to what we're talking about. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 10 says this, So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. I'd love to do that. For youth and vigor are meaningless. Youth and vigor are meaningless. I think what he's saying here is that, you know what? We all grow old. In the end, what does it matter? We all grow old. So don't worry about it too much. It happens to us all. Ecclesiastes 12, it's a bit of a long passage, but I just want you to hear the aging journey, because I think it's an interesting and beautiful one, full of mercy. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, you can hear sort of the depressed mood setting in and sometimes comes with loss of function. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the window grow dim, the eyes no longer being able to see the way they used to, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, do you hear the hearing going? When the people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the street, you see confusion happens, a vulnerability as we age. When the almond trees blossom and the grasshopper draws itself along, the almond trees are like white hairs growing where darker hair once grew. And the desire is no longer stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about in the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And now all has been heard here in this, in the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or it is evil. A picture for us. Watching ourselves or loved ones grow. And he says famously, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. In other words, we all die. We all die. Here is life. And we look at this full in the face so we can know how to approach it. And here's my premise as I think about this passage and why I think it's so important. How, what and how we think about the end of our lives has everything to do with how we live our lives now. What and how we think about the end of our lives 
has everything to do with how we live our lives now. And if you don't think that's true, just pause for a second and imagine you have been given news. And someone has told you, you have a limited time left on this earth. You've got three months to live. You've got maybe a year. Maybe we can get you two. Maybe you're going to live a long time. Maybe you don't want to keep living. And life is hard. And your doctor tells you, well, I don't think you're going anywhere. So you better buckle your seatbelt and just prepare for a longer journey. That conversation happens too. It changes things, doesn't it? It changes our priorities. It presses to the surface the things that are most important, the things that are most urgent, the things that are most valuable. All of a sudden, the hierarchy of wants and needs in our lives starts to change. It gets adapted, right? We stop worrying about long-term things. We give away our five-year plan in favor of the one-year plan, right? We start thinking about bucket lists instead of 401ks. It changes the way we think about our lives. And I'd just like for us to look at a very short passage that comes in response to a longer narrative. It's the Apostle Paul having a conversation with his protege, Timothy. And he's impressing upon him that which is most urgent to him because Paul is sensing that the end of his life is drawing nearer rather than further away. And it has pressed to the surface for him and now for us what is most urgent, what is most significant. And I'd like for us just to look at that conversation because I think it touches on a couple of things that might be helpful for us as we think about our own conversations, our own narratives, or maybe the narratives of loved ones that we have who are also nearing the end of their earthly journey. So we're in 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 4, verse 6. And in this section, we see this explanation of urgencies that run through Paul's uh, exhortations, these things that he's impressing upon Timothy as you read through the entire book. As you read through 2 Timothy, we realize that he's urging him to do a handful of things uh, committed to the sound truth of the gospel, to guard the good deposit of ministry that they've done, hold on to that, he tells Timothy, to identify those who are swerving from the truth so that he will avoid doing the very same thing. He talks about those who have been shipwrecked when it comes to the faith so that he won't also become shipwrecked, urging him to make sure that he doesn't just take care of himself physically because physical fitness has a certain value, but spiritual fitness is essential for all of life and for the life to come. And in all of that, there's this underpinning of understanding that we get to in verse 6. He says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. In the first five verses of the chapter, he's giving a charge to Timothy, and then in verse 6, he explains why all of this is so critical, why it's so important. Timothy, I need you to pay close attention to me 
Not only am I going through life review, I'm going through ministry review, and I want to share this message with you because it's all kind of bubbling to the surface. The most important things of my life and my ministry I want to give to you, and I want you to pay attention. There's nothing quite like the prospect of death to clarify the issues of life. You immediately start to think about questions you didn't think before. It's death that clarifies the issues of life for us. I think that's maybe what the scriptures were talking about when they said it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of praise. Better to remember. I'm always reminded death is for the living. It's for us. And what has happened to Paul is that he finds himself in jail. And his attention is absolutely focused because he's in this critical moment. He senses he's nearing the end. And a couple of things rise to the surface in this very short passage. He gives us information on what I'll describe as a process of his dying. And then maybe the prospect that he faces. Okay? So a process and a prospect. It's just a couple of things. And we'll unpack them a little bit uh, in the time we have. So first thing is the process he identifies right here in the text. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And this sounds like flowery language. We don't necessarily get this uh, in our day-to-day lingo. But uh, this terminology would have been really familiar to his listeners. This was really common in the Old Testament, first century Ephesus, both in Greco-Roman world as well as in the Jewish world, a figure of speech. When you go back into the Old Testament... You can search for this if you like. You discover that Moses gave instructions to the people on how to offer sacrifices. And you had grain offerings and you have animal offerings. But there were also offerings of wine and of oil. And what they would do with the wine and the oil is they would pour it out onto the ground or onto the altar. They would pour it out and it would spill over the surface and it would absorb into the street or into the, into the ground underneath. And it would have been a primary or a complementary expression, an illustration of a life poured out, a life offered, a life given, not a life wasted, but a life given, a life attributed, right? And it would have been something relatively expensive, something of significance. And other people would have seen this happening and maybe they would have thought to themselves, like, why? What a a waste. What are you doing? Right? Somebody had a wet back in the first century. They'd be out there trying to salvage whatever, you know, good thing from the earth might have been poured out. And it reminds me of that, that picture of the woman of the city who came to Jesus and brought this alabaster jar, right? Probably her most prized possession of perfume and she cracked it open and she poured it over Jesus' feet and everybody else was kind of standing back in the fragrance and the intensity of that moment and they were confused because they didn't understand the motivation for what she was doing. Why such waste? Why is she doing this? Why is Jesus allowing her to do this? Right? And they would have tried to save the moment rescue the moment or question the moment. Romans 12.1 talks about this because he gets to the heart of it. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Oh, I've poured out. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Living sacrifices, ongoing expressions of givenness, of pouring out, right? Of sacrifice. When you think of sacrifice, this is a very specific idea, right? It's going to cost something. It's going to require something, right? We see that image, grain offerings, animal offerings, wine and oil. Are you with me? Right? This is the picture of a life being poured out. It's a metaphor. It's right here. Not everybody is going to grasp or accept your expression of a life poured out. And I faced this the other day. Uh, most of you know that, that I've been working in a hospital setting as a hospital chaplain. And, and it's been fascinating because when you're in a hospital, you, you face death on a regular basis. Probably every day. I would say every day. I'm with somebody who is who is dying, has died, or is, is imminently dying. And I had a really challenging journey for me personally uh, with a patient who was very young. And I'll call her, uh, I'll call her Jennifer. And she was 26 and had Crohn's disease since the age of 12 and had had a multitude of things done to her. And up until the moment that I met her, had been in the hospital or another hospital or moving between hospitals for the last year of her life. And they did everything. They did it all. She had every specialist, every doctor, Every person working diligently, trying to rescue her life and free her from at least the symptoms of her illness. And at the very end of the journey, she made a bold decision. She was a tough, tough young woman. And she said, no more. I don't want to do another thing. I don't want another procedure. And she had a big family. And they were, they were in it. Man, they had been journeying with her since she was a young girl. And they had doctors trying to convince her to change her mind. And family members trying to convince her to change her mind. And at the end of the day, she made a decision that this is my life poured out. And I want it to end a certain way. And she made a bold decision. She said, no more. And it took her family days and days, and doctors days and days, and we would sit. And she'd say, I'm tired, and I'm scared, but I know it's the right thing. Not everybody is going to understand or appreciate your decision to pour out your life. Are you with me? Not everyone's going to comprehend or agree with you in the way that you are and offer yourself as a living sacrifice unto Jesus. It's not a simple thing that we're describing here. How we live in light of our own view of our death and our own resurrection matters. It matters when the rubber meets the road. Are you with me? These are critical choices. 
Hopefully that we never face. But if we do, it helps us to understand where we're coming from. I want to tease something out here that I think is actually really important. It's a little bit nerdy, and it's a little bit buried in the text, but I think it's actually critical for us to, to lay hold of just a little bit. So bear with me here. Notice that this passage, when it talks about the pouring out of his life, is not active, it's passive. I am already being poured out is not an active statement. He did not say, I am pouring out my life. Do you see it? It's passive. I am already being poured out. In other words, God is superintending what is happening in the life of Paul. Paul accepts that he is not in control with the pouring out of his own life in the time that he's been given, whether that time is long or whether that time is short. He recognizes that God is superintending what is happening in his life. And when he has a chance to determine his own agenda, when he's not in jail, no, when he, whether he's in jail, whether he's in success, whether he's in disappointment, he acknowledges that this is something that is happening to me, that I am not in absolute control of my destiny, and he's allowing that thing to happen. This is a fascinating conversation in the context of life and death and hospitals and medicine. How we accept and acknowledge what is happening to us. And there's only one other occasion in the New Testament where Paul uses this same metaphor. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says this, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Changes the language. It goes from passive now to potential, even if I am being poured out. And Philippians happens before 2 Timothy. So it goes from a possibility, even if I'm being poured out, I don't know what's happening, I might be, I don't really know, it's not up to me, to I am already being poured out. And he senses it's a reality. We're transitioning from theoretical conversation to actual conversation. Do you see the shift in the language? I am already being poured out like a drink offering. That's the process. The journey that we all go on. The wrestling that's happening with the Apostle Paul. The second aspect is this prospect. This prospect language that takes over in the metaphor on the back half. The prospect of his death, or as he refers to it, his departure. Once again, Philippians uses the same terminology and the same language. Philippians chapter 1, 22 to 25 says this. He says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. You see the wrestling going on? Man, I've, I've had this conversation dozens and dozens and dozens of times with people who are just hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. And they look at me and they say, Doug, I'm ready. 
I know where I'm going. I've lived a long and fruitful life, but you know who's not ready? Those people over there sitting in the chair and are just staring at me, hoping and praying. They're the ones that want me sticking around, right? And it's not for inheritance. It's not for any of that stuff. They're just not ready. They're not ready to face the thing that the other person is ready to face. Maybe the person going through it is, has had more time, right? I've almost never seen the family ready and the person in the bed not ready. I've not seen that disagreement. That's a little, that's a totally different conversation, right? Wow. Yeah, don't get any ideas, kids, right? <laughs> Just let go. Paul is wrestling here. He doesn't know what to choose. The life that he has. He's ready to be with the Lord. He knows how good it's going to be. He's feeling the eyes grow dim. He's feeling his hearing going. He's starting to stoop. He's starting to feel the pains of his old age. And he's like, this is getting bad. I'm ready. But he's worried about the kids. Right? Who's going to look after them? It's not all sorted. Even in Paul's mind. Not sorted for us. These are the conversations, perhaps, that we need to have. If there's plenty for me to still do, if there's more to accomplish, what are those things? If there are concerns that we have in our relationships, whether it's with our kids or with other people that we feel responsible for, how are we managing those expectations? How do we know? I'm torn between the two. We're not really here to talk about Philippians chapter 2, but it's such a useful lens through which we're looking. There's this word, there's this word that Paul uses that I think is a beautiful word. One that I think comes up a lot in my conversations with the dying and with their families. And it's this word departure that he uses. My departure is near. And the word that he uses is analusis. This is nerdy Greek stuff. You don't have to remember that. What you want to remember is what it means. Analusis is a farming term used to describe the removing of a yoke from an oxen after a day's labor. It's the language of pulling up tent stakes so that you can move from a temporary home into your regular home. It's the description of pulling up that which is temporary to move into that which is permanent. Are you with me? It is the relieving of weight. It is this utter sense of lightness that we feel when our work is done and rest is ahead of us. Right? It's the putting down of the bag. It's the setting down of a uniform. It's the Disrobing, if you have a jacket or an article, a hat, something protective wear that you have. It's the peeling off of all of these layers so that you can enter into rest. And it's a beautiful sensation, right? After a long day's work. Paul is exceedingly clear here 
The very reason he's able to speak so straightforwardly about this is because he understands that to depart this earth is to be with Christ. And that that departure and that arrival are instantaneous things, friends. There's no waiting room. There's no in-between space. There's no delay, right? There's no lag in our arrival to being with Christ. When a person who is a follower of Jesus, who has put their trust in the Lord, passes from this life, they move into the presence of Jesus instantaneously. And there is nothing more valuable, more hope-giving than that kind of testimony that I can leave behind what might be a broken and battered shell and move into the fullness of the presence of Christ in a moment. It's pretty important for us to have that figured out as we think about the life that we lead. I want to make a note of something that I think is actually uh, at the heart of a lot of distress that I've just sort of anecdotally observed uh, in my time with folks. One is the denial of death. It's a real problem. It's a significant challenge. And I would argue one of the significant causes of distress, not only for patients and their families, but also for medical staff, who are battling to keep somebody, you know, teetering on life, just plugging them into everything that we've got, right? When a family says, I don't accept this as a possible outcome, or they say, no, do everything you can to keep them alive. It's tough, because they can do a lot. And there is this invisible boundary, friends. This invisible, moral, spiritual space that we all enter into together when we deny the reality that we all die. And when we want to take every artifice and every instrument and bring it to bear on the body of a real human being, we enter into this weird, narrow space where we have to begin to question ourselves. Is this the right thing to do? And friends, I feel a lot of embarrassment at times because I'll tell you, one of the number one bodies of people in the hospital who prescribe to a denial of death Philosophy when it comes to caring for people who are on their way out are Christians who refuse to acknowledge that life can end and that it does end and that it doesn't end the way that we want it to end and they hold on to what I consider to be a false theology around miracles and of the way God heals people and more suffering ensues. And more often than not, those conversations move to ethics boards and ethics conversations. 
We have questions about our faith. What do people believe? Why do they allow it? And I offer that to you not as an explanation, not as a denouncing of people's thoughts or beliefs or ideas, but as a wrestling with what really matters. What is the narrative about how we die relative to how we live as a part of this larger story that we're all a part of that doesn't end just with this life and with this body, praise Jesus, but moves into eternal one, a much better one, one with Jesus more fully present. We have to figure that out. And start to think about critically and carefully what it means. What does it mean for you and for me to have a good death? What does it mean for you and me to have had a good life that no one can take away, that no one can steal, that no one can murder? I'll conclude with this story. I had this beautiful conversation with a patient. He was kind of down in the dumps uh, at day. This was just yesterday. And I was chatting with him two days ago. I was just chatting with him. And he says, oh, I'm down in the dumps. I got some news. I've got cancer. And my doctor, and this is how he described it, my doctor from behind his paper, over my face, said that maybe I've got three months to live. And he asked his doctor, doctor, can you just... Can you just drop the paper? I need you to look me in the eyes and tell me this news. And he said something really profound to me in our conversation. He was in life review mode. He told me every story. I was in there for an hour. And he told me every story. He was a Vietnam veteran. Had been shot five times. Left for dead in the jungle. Crawled himself out. Walked 18 miles. And survived. Had three kids. Five grandkids. Most of whom he really loved. <laughs> He's kind of a funny guy. But he looked at me and he said, Doug, 74 years old. I've had a good life. I've done most of the things that I've wanted to do. And he said, no one can take that away from me. This bad news that I got the other day doesn't change the life that I've lived. And as a lifelong Methodist, he knew where he was going. None of it changes. It doesn't matter what happens to me now. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to me with whatever it is that is going to take place in the next few months. None of it matters because none of it takes away the life that I've lived. None of it takes away the things that I've done and the God that I've worshipped, and the wife that he's loved, and the children that they've born together, and the wars they fought. You hear it, friends? None of it changes who we are. That's a very specific view of the Christian life. Everything that I have done in this life matters in eternity, because it's part of the kingdom of God and the expression of the kingdom of God in my life and the life that I live that is poured out. Do you see it? It all matters in the end 
And death itself, the death of the body, does not change, take away, or diminish the life poured out for the sake of Jesus. It all matters. And it continues to matter. That doesn't stop. If we believe life and death are part of a larger narrative that actually goes on to eternity, then what we do in this life matters. How we die and how we move into eternity matters. And they're all part of the same story, friends. You see it? All covered and washed and clothed in the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to consider that. Whatever it is that you're doing, wherever it is that you are, whether you are young or whether you are old, I want you to consider what that means. That your life and your death are part of a larger narrative that bounds itself into eternity where what we do in this life matters. How we approach our death matters. Because none of it gets taken away from us. It just gets washed and clothed and made perfect in the blood of our Savior Jesus.